Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. You doing good? Yeah. Come on. Hey, it wouldn't be the same without you, literally. But um, it's so great to have all of you guys here. And for those of you guys tuning in online, thanks for being here. It's been a good service so far. We've had Cowbell, which is uh, just good, I guess. And um, it's the best. I wanted more. We need more Cowbell in our lives. And um, got to do communion together, which is special. Um, But if you're newer to our church, we've been in an eight-week series having a conversation around this idea of Jesus is King. Now, I recognize that even in this room, uh, there's people that represent different stages and places in their journey with Jesus, relationship with God. Perhaps there are some of you in the room that would feel like they're, uh, you guys are seasoned followers of Jesus. Others of you who would feel that uh, you are a newer discipleship, uh, disciple to Christ, perhaps in the last couple of years or months or weeks even. And there's some of you guys that might be here just exploring faith and the idea of God. If you've been a follower of Jesus, this language of kingship and God's kingdom isn't new. But if you are newer to church, this language may be unfamiliar when it comes to the nuances of who God is and what he's about. But just so that you feel invited to the conversation, really this series of messages is all about looking at who Jesus is and therefore what he's about. And an extension, it's actually an invitation for you and I, the family of God, his sons and daughters, to be a part of what he's doing here on earth as it is in heaven. And today we find ourselves kind of halfway through the series of messages, having a conversation around this idea, Jesus as our healer. Now, depending on your experience of church and even the supernatural, this idea of Jesus healing may be a trigger for you. It might trigger different memories, different senses of disappointment, disillusionment, emotional pain, suffering that you've seen others or perhaps yourself go through. But what I want to invite you to be a part of, whether you're tuning in online or here in person, is to look at scripture with me, to do a deep dive into who Jesus really is and therefore what he's about around this idea of healing. I want to address the disillusionment that we can experience, the disappointment, address the tension that uh, scholars would call living in the now but not yet reality of the kingdom of God. And I would encourage us to look forward to the future glory that Jesus promises that Sarah alluded to. But before we talk about healing, we have to address the issue of pain, right? Because Pain is the reason that healing is desired, that healing is wanted. After all, a craving of wholeness is a result of an experience of brokenness, a fragmentation. Now, pain is universal, right? You don't need to be a follower of Jesus. You don't need to be even faith-like or religious in any way to understand that pain exists. Really quickly, not to the person beside you, but I want you to pinch your own arm really quickly. Now, pinching is the worst because it just hurts in ways that it's hard to describe. But when we pinch ourselves, our body, through our nerve endings and pain receptors, are telling us that something is wrong, that something in our body needs to be attended to. And in that way, experiencing pain is good. But in a similar way, when we experience pain and brokenness in our lives, it's God's way of telling us that something is wrong. This is not the way he had designed nor attended. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, puts it this way. 
He says, pain is the megaphone of God. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is that the way that God speaks to us through our pain is not that he causes the pain, but that the pain that we experience in this world tells us that this was not the way God had originally intended. Something is wrong. Something needs to be attended to. This is a fragmented picture of what Jesus wants each one of us to experience. And if we stop there, if the message ended, if the conversation stopped, it would feel full of despair and hopelessness. But the good news in the kingdom of God is that God always had a plan for the restoring and renewal of all things. But when it comes to healing, and perhaps specifically physical healing, it's pretty normal to find Christians and non-Christians alike wrestling with the question, does God still heal today? And at some point in our lives, whether it's personal or through loved ones and those close to us, we experience physical pain and ailment. Some of us have a, carrier, a heavier burden to carry in carrying chronic illness and pain and ailment. Others of us experience more gradually as we age. But all of us have been affected by chronic illness and terminal illness and, and loved ones being taken too early, seeing people suffer through pain, exhaustion, heartache. So whether it's through our own health or our loved ones, we're all forced to wrestle with this question, does God heal? And if we were to look to scripture and flip through the pages and look what God's word would have to say around this idea, we would find that not only is it God's nature and character to heal, but he loves doing it. In fact, in Exodus chapter 15, it says, I am the Lord who heals you. The Bible talks about emotional, psychological, and spiritual healing, but it talks about, in a very real way, physical healing. The Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus healing people. In fact, in Matthew 9, it says this, that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So then what do we do as followers of Jesus with the reality that when we pray for healing, it feels like sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't. How do we reconcile our experiences with what we see in scripture? And even in this room, I recognize that we carry pain and hurt around this conversation. What do we do? What I want to look at is look through scripture to see, again, the very character and nature of the God that we serve and then also explain this idea of the tension that we hold living in the now and not yet reality of the kingdom of God. And then I want to encourage us as a family to hold on to the promise of future glory in a way that Paul writes far outweighs our present suffering. But I recognize again in this room, there's pain attached to conversations like this. And my hope is that all of us would walk out of an experience and a conversation like this with a clearer view of who God is. And I just believe our loving Father in heaven would have something to say to each of us. But before we go through the word tonight, I'd love if we just created a space of prayer even in this moment as we go into it. Jesus, we love you. We recognize that you desire to speak to each one of us in a personal way that your heart is to show up and to speak. 
So God, I pray that you would be glorified, revealed, made clearer than ever before. God, I pray for those even right now reminiscing through the memories of pain and hurt around this idea of sickness and illness. Jesus, I pray that you'd bring healing and freedom emotionally, physically, spiritually. I pray that we would see you clearer than ever before. And we pray all of this in your name. And most people said, amen. 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 Do any of you guys love movies? I love movies. Um, TV shows? Books? Books is like the one thing that like is more socially acceptable to like really admit you love because it just makes you look smart. It's true. I don't like reading books, but I love movies and TV shows, right? Like there's nothing like worse than like the end of a good TV series on Netflix because then the pressure is on to have to go um, watch, you know, and find another new one. But I love movies and TV shows, right? Everything about movies and TVs. And I think more than anything, it's human nature to love and be attracted to stories, right? Like, we're all suckers for good stories. I love getting caught up in the character development and the plot line and understanding how stories work. You know how, like, in English 8 all the way through to 12 in secondary school, they teach you this, the same thing every year? It's like that little, you know, the, you, know the, you know the thing? Like, it's like intro, rising action, climax, resolution, conclusion. You know what I mean? Like, some of you guys are in high school, you get it. Like, you haven't learned anything new in the last four years in English. It's just, what is that? Like, you learn what simile means, what metaphor means, what alliteration is, and then this stupid thing. But it's worked, because it's like the only thing I remember from high school, you know? But I love being wrapped up in a good story, Ryan, right? There's something about being infatuated with what's going on, and directors and and script writers and authors have unique ways of being able to, you know, convey and communicate emotions that we want to feel or that they want us to feel and kind of journey through us in this way. But the issue with most stories that you and I would experience is that they're pretty predictable, right? If you've watched enough movies or enough TV shows, it'd be hard for you to find one that really throws you off guard. Like, who's watched Finding Nemo? Show of hands. Really? Yeah, okay. That's more. Imagine if they didn't find Nemo. You know what I'm saying? Like, it'd be disappointing. None of us are watching Finding Dory. It's like the worst, like, so much trauma from something like that. Here, kids, here's a movie about trying to find a fish. They don't find them. Most movies and TV shows are predictable. And so when you find a story with a good plot twist, there's something naturally attractive about that. I want to look at a story in scripture found in Mark chapter 2 that has this like brilliant plot twist where Jesus says something that catches even his followers off guard. And then he proceeds to do something miraculous that people are blown away by. And I love this moment because it gives us incredible insight into not just what he does, but who Jesus is and the power that he carries around this conversation of healing. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, be better. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm just playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. There's a free app, though, so like, it's not... Hard to be better. Uh, I'm kidding. All right, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, 5 p.m., let's go. This is what it reads. Best reading voice you've ever heard. Here it goes. A few days later. It's like my same voice, but you laughed. Um, when Jesus again entered Capernaum. Debatable on the pronunciation of that city. Capernaum. Sounds right. Capernaum? No. Capernaum. The people heard that he had come home. 
They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, what I want to do with this text to give us a clearer picture of what's going on in the story is kind of what kids love to do when they go to the beach, you know, like lift up heavy rocks to see all the weird things that crawl up underneath. Does anyone else find it, like, fascinating and scary that, like, we know less about our ocean than space? A little scary, I'm just saying we live by the biggest one. But what I want to do is uncover the rock, so to speak, in this story and look at what's going on to get a clearer picture, an insight into who Jesus is and what he would have to say around this idea of healing. Starting in verses 1 and 2, this is what it says, right? A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. What does that mean? just means that there's tons of people. And he preached the word to them. You've got to understand that wherever Jesus went, he was teaching such audacious things with such great authority and power. People were getting healed. Lame people were walking. Deaf people were hearing. Blind people were seeing. This was the kind of activity that Jesus was up to. He was claiming to be the son of God. And so everywhere that he went, there were these gospel rumors, gospel gossip that used to spread around towns and villages to the point that before Jesus would walk into these cities and towns, people would already be gathered. There was a hunger, not just for what Jesus was doing, but also for what Jesus was teaching, a spiritual appetite in these spaces. And what I love about the imagery of the story is that, like, how full can a house get that even outside there's no room? Like, at what point is the end of that? And what I love about this is that scholars and academics would understand that if they wanted, they could have waited till the Sabbath day when Jesus usually preached in the synagogues. But there was something so desperate about the people that were in that room, in that house, as well as outside, that wanted them to see Jesus for themselves. There was an invitation culture, even to those that didn't even understand the gospel and Jesus' kingdom and fullness. There was a hunger for Jesus, and there was a hunger for wholeness. And so we see this scene that's set before us, in a house that we're not really sure of whose house it is. Some scholars would believe it to be Peter's. And what Jesus is doing is not entertaining them, but actually preaching the word of God to them. Preaching with such authority and such power and such conviction 
that men and women alike had never heard anything like this before. There was a clear distinction in the way Jesus taught than to what the rabbis and the other religious leaders in the synagogue in the day would teach. Then it says in verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. This is vandalism. If this is Peter's house, he's like, "Uh, Jesus, is there a budget in your itinerant ministry to cover the freaking roof? And think about this, right? Like, Think about what digging a hole through a person's roof looks like. Jesus is teaching, and while his teaching, before people understand what's going on, there's debris falling, right? There's people having conversation, you know, like, I imagine one of the guys was like a roofer, so he's like, no, this is where we have to dig, guys. The other guy's like a framer, so he's like, no, you got to go here. It's better to go here because this is the layout of the house. But there would have been like bickering, people trying to figure out, how are we going to get this dude to Jesus? And before they even get to the house, you know that they're confronted by multiple challenges, I don't know about you, but I want friends like these four guys. They did whatever they could to get their friend to Jesus. There were so many opportunities for them to be discouraged enough, to have a good enough excuse to say, no, we tried our best, but sorry, dude, there's too many people. Despite the crowd on the outside of the house, they somehow managed to get their way through. They would have caused commotion, ruckus. They weren't the only people looking for healing and wholeness. They somehow got their friend up to the roof of this house. Then they, I don't know what they used, but they start digging. Straight up vandalism. Debris is falling while Jesus is teaching. People in the house are like, what is going on? They finally get this man through the roof. And this is not like a small hole, right? This is a man-sized mat hole in the middle of like their living room. Like what's going on? They finally get this man through the roof lowered. And then this is what it says in verse five. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that sounds great, but let's paint this picture again. Right? These four dudes carried their paralyzed friend, clearly paralyzed because he was laying on a mat. They dug a freaking hole through the roof, lowered him to Jesus. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth is, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, it would have been clear to everyone in the room, everyone in the crowd, even to Jesus, that the most obvious, most apparent need that this man had was the paralysis of his body. But somehow Jesus goes to the greater need. Rather than just confronting the effect, he confronts the cause. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders, right? I mean, we're talking about like real people who studied the Bible that we read today. These were people that were devoted to doctrine and scripture and the teachings of the Bible, They think to themselves, why is this fellow referring to Jesus talking like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And what I love about this moment is that these guys weren't wrong about what the law said. Of course it's true that only God can forgive sins. But they were just wrong in their understanding of who Jesus was. Jesus with the authority to be able to forgive sin. And so Jesus calls these guys out. 
These guys haven't said anything. They're just thinking it. Jesus says, it says, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. So he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus, in this moment, is actually revealing an important character of who he is. In that moment, he's not just revealed himself as just another great teacher or master or rabbi. He's revealed himself as God himself, saying, I want you to know that I have authority to do both to not just go after the paralysis of your body, but also, and more importantly, the paralysis of your soul. This is the greatest miracle. We see the man who's carried on the mat take home the very mat he was carried on, leaving everyone in amazement and bewilderment about who Jesus was and the miracle that he had just performed. In this story, in this text, we learn something, that Jesus is like the great ER doctor. What I mean by that is if you've watched shows like Grey's Anatomy and The Good Doctor, it has a way of making you feel like a medical expert, right? It's like 40 hours of Netflix, equivalent to 12 years of med school. Just something about that. We just all know weird things that happen in operation rooms that we're not even sure doctors say, but we're confident they say because of these shows. But these shows teach you something, right? They teach you that the greatest ER doctors always go to the most life-threatening need, right? So if a person is carried into the hospital from a car accident, they could have broken legs, a broken collarbone, cuts and serrations all over their face and arms. But it's the punctured lung that's actually causing internal bleeding that the great ER doctor will first attend to. Why? Because it's the most life-threatening need. In the same way, Jesus here is not just confronting the paralysis of the body, which is a need. but his greater need, the paralysis of the soul. And in that way, Jesus performs the greatest miracle that can happen in anyone, a renewal of their spirit and soul. This is what Corinthians talks about as being born as a new creation. We talk about this in church lots, that God isn't in the business of just behavior modification, but heart transformation. Actually, the playing out of our faith first begins from a complete renewal of our souls and spirits from death to life. This is the language, not just from bad to good, that happens as a result of following Jesus, but result of following Jesus begins with a complete renewal in him. This is what communion that we just participated in is all about, from death to life. Jesus Our great doctor, the great ER doctor, will always go first and foremost to the paralysis of the soul before he goes to the paralysis of the body. And it's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he's unable. It's not that he's unwilling even to attend to our physical needs. It's that the greatest need that humanity has is the poverty of the soul. And no matter good diet, fitness, lifestyle, positivity cannot fix the spiritual death that all of us have without Christ. Jesus, the great ER doctor, shows us that the greatest miracle is the miracle that only he can perform. Healing of the paralysis of the soul. Jesus first wanted to deal with this. 
So though it's so evident and apparent to all those in the room that it was clearly the paralysis of the body that these four friends had brought their friend for, Jesus says, first, son, your sins are forgiven. Going after not just the effect, but the cause. This is Christ, the great ER doctor. Part of the spiritual resuscitation and resurrection, complete restoration. This is the greatest miracle any human can experience. And it's an experience every follower of Jesus can go through. But then we also see, right, that Jesus does attend to this man's physical needs. It says that, it says, get up, take your mat, and go home. Proving that not just does he have the authority to forgive sin, but also the authority and power and willingness to heal bodies. And it's true, right? Again, in Matthew chapter 9, it says that wherever Jesus went, he went preaching the gospel, but then healing every disease and sickness. And the Bible and church history and tradition would tell us that it wasn't even just Jesus that performed healing miracles, but that he actually empowered his followers with his spirit to also be a part of healing ministry. In fact, you only have to look to the act of the apostles to see that throughout church history, there was people and followers of Jesus, ordinary men and women of God that were a part of healing miracles. Jesus in his kingdom extends to all his followers, his sons and daughters, co-laborers in the kingdom to be a part of the ministry of healing. Do you know that actually hospitals were started by Christians? That it was in 325 AD that the Christians started building hospitals across the Roman Empire. In fact, the oldest Canadian hospital was started in 1645 in Montreal by a Canadian Christian nurse. That it was in the 1880s, the Methodist Foundation started hospitals across the U.S. to serve all types of people, no matter background, religious, faith, worldview, or race. This is the mark of followers of Jesus, the ministry of healing. But then what do we do with the tension that we still experience? That it feels like when we pray for healing, sometimes God seems to heal and sometimes he doesn't. What do we do with the disappointment that many of us in this room have experienced? And when we experience this kind of disappointment and disillusionment, people might be tempted to say things like this to you. You just didn't have enough faith. It's because of the sin in your life or some type of curse. In the most kind way, I would like to say, I think they're wrong. You might be tempted to believe after experiencing disappointment around healing that it's because God doesn't love you enough or you haven't done good enough things to, to be in right standing before God. Kindly, I would again say, I think you're wrong. Father Rainier Cantalamessa, who's the preacher to the Pope in the papal household for the last four decades, he says this, we're free and able to ask the Holy Spirit at any time to heal us. But if the Spirit does not do it, there's no reason to think that it's because we have no faith or that God does not love us or that God is punishing us. I just think even in a room this size, when we've experienced disappointment around this conversation, it can be so easy to believe some of these lies. So then how do we explain this tension that we feel? Here comes the idea that, again, scholars have kind of coined this idea of living in the reality of the now but not yet reality of the kingdom of God. 
And the best illustration I have to kind of help understand this idea is D-Day and V-E Day. You see, on June 6, 1944, on the shores of Normandy, the Allies marched forward, defeating Hitler and the Nazis. And it was on that day Hitler and the Nazis knew that they had lost. It was the beginning of the end. But it wasn't until a full year later, on May 8, 1945, also known as VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day, when the Nazis and the German soldiers surrendered in Berlin and the war was finally over. In the same way, when Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross on the first Easter, it was like D-Day. Satan was defeated. Death was eradicated. Jesus was the victor. As followers of Jesus, we know how the story ends. And there's a promise of one day, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more brokenness. The renewal of all things and a new heaven and a new earth. This is VE Day. But as followers of Jesus, we understand that today we're living in the tension of between D-Day and V-E Day, where we know how the story ends. Jesus has already won. I remember when I was younger, I used to think that like the cosmic struggle between bad and good, evil and God, was like this tug of war between Satan and God. Is not even close to that at all. Jesus has already won, and Satan is also aware of it. I heard a preacher once say that a dying dragon is the most dangerous. Satan, knowing he's lost already, is trying to do all that he can to inflict as much pain and suffering in the brokenness of this world. So as followers of Jesus, we recognize that we're living in victory, yes, but we're living in the now but not yet reality of the kingdom of God. This is good news because it means that when it comes to God's healing power, it's sometimes now, but it's, if it's not now, it's always not yet, meaning it's coming. Think about that. It's never no. It's either now or not yet. There's hope and promise. And this is not just wishful thinking for followers of Jesus. This is a fundamental idea of the Christian walk, that Jesus is alive, that he defeated sin and death the first Easter on the cross, taking away Satan's power and defeating him once and for all. But we live in the tension of the reality that the full renewal of all things is yet to come. We hold on to that promise of no more tears, no more pain. The Bible says that God will come again and renew us and establish his kingdom in its fullness. No more sickness. In fact, in Romans 8, verse 18, this is what the apostle Paul writes. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We know that the whole creation has been growing as in the pains of childhood right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I'm going to invite the team to come back up as we get ready to close. You know, I believe, and it's a little biased, but I think most of you guys would agree, that we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, right on the west coast of Canada. Now, mind you, the one thing that we could say about our cities are that it's a little too wet and a little too cold a little too often. right? But after a long winter... In like early spring, you know, there's like a the couple days, perhaps even weeks if we're early, where there's like just beautiful weather. It's like shorts and shirts and Birkenstocks weather. And you're like, this is the best. 
this is like Vancouver Fornia. You know what I mean? You're like living in the glory of all that is to come. But then like a week later, it's like freezing cold again. You're wearing toques. When we experience days like that, what we're experiencing is a sign that summer is coming, a taste that it's yet to come. And so when we experience healing here on earth, it's just like that. It's a taste of the future, of what's to come. The hope that we have in God is that no matter what we experience here on earth, there's a promise of future glory that far outweighs our present sufferings. That the story doesn't end with our death here on earth. This changes everything. See, whether we experience physical healing here on earth or not, one thing still remains certain. God loves us. So from a conversation like this today, I guess what I'd wish all of us to walk away with is first that the greatest miracle any of us could experience is the healing of the paralysis of our souls. The greatest miracle is that we can experience life and life to the fullest in Christ. From spiritual death to renewal and fullness of life. I'd also want us to walk away with this idea of hope of the future glory. This idea that we live in this tension between the now and not yet reality of the kingdom of God. But I'd also want us to walk away with a sense of how near God is to the brokenhearted. This is what Philip Yancey writes in his book, Where's God When It Hurts? He says, the fact that Jesus came to earth where he suffered and died does not remove pain from our lives. But it does show that God did not sit idly by and watch us suffer in isolation. He became one of us. Thus in Jesus, God gives us an up close and personal look at his response to human suffering. All of our questions about God and suffering should then in fact be filtered through what we know about Jesus. The record of Jesus' life on earth should forever answer the question, how does God feel about our pain? In reply, God did not give us words or theories on the problem of pain. He gave us himself. For a philosophy may explain difficult things, but has not power to change them. But the gospel and the story of Jesus' life promises change. Let me read that again. In reply to pain, God did not give us words or theories on the problem of pain. He gave us himself. For a philosophy may explain difficult things, but has not power to change them. The gospel, the story of Jesus' life promises change. So what's our response to a conversation like this? What do we do with this idea that sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't? I don't have answers to all those things. I don't know if anyone really does. But I do know for certain that God has a plan, that we know how the story ends. That one day, right, no more pain, no more suffering, no more brokenness. That's the promise. It's not wishful thinking. It's not an addendum at the end of our lives. It's completely the hope that we anchor our lives to. It changes the way radically and fundamentally the way we approach life and pain right now. Understanding that nothing is going to be greater than the renewal of all things that we'll experience as followers of Jesus. So then what do we do as a church family, as a community? 
I think we pray for healing. Pastor John Wimber has this amazing quote around this idea of prayer ministry and, and praying for healing. He says that when we prayed for no one, no one got healed. But when we prayed for everyone, some people got healed. So what do we do? We pray for as many people as possible. And when God heals today, it's a taste. It's like the few nice days in the spring. It's a taste of what's to come. That there's a promise of renewal of all things. That God always had a plan. That his heart was always bent towards reconciling humanity to himself. So in our pain, he speaks to us saying, this is not the way I had originally designed, but I have a plan. God has already won. We stand in complete victory, but we stand in the tension of the now, but not yet reality of the kingdom of God. So right now, as followers of Jesus, we hold on to that promise. We anchor ourselves in that hope. And then we pray that God, would you touch our bodies here now as it is in heaven? But if he doesn't heal us now, we know that one day there will be. If he doesn't heal us now, we don't conclude God doesn't love us. We don't have enough faith. Something was wrong. I did something wrong. No, no, no. What we conclude is God loves us. He's with us. He's with us in the suffering and in the pain. God has a plan. It's always either now or not yet. It's never no when it comes to healing. And we also recognize that the greatest miracle of healing any of us could experience, we already have. The healing of the paralysis of the soul. Jesus in Mark chapter 2 makes it so clear what he's after. And how hopeful is it that we have a God who has the authority, not just the willingness, but the authority to forgive sins. This is what I'm going to invite you to do. I'm going to invite you guys to just stand up where you're at. And in a moment, the band is going to lead us in another song. And before then, in a moment, I'm also going to invite a few people up to the front just for some prayer ministry. Now, if you been around our church a little bit, you know that we love to create moments of prayer ministry almost every week. And you can come up for anything. I'd encourage you to come up for prayer in any way. But if there's any sense of healing that you desire to experience, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, whatever it is, I just believe that after a conversation like tonight, it would honor God to create space for us to invite him in. And I don't know, maybe some of us will experience healing here now. But if not, it's to come. That's the hope, isn't it? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to invite Pastor Emma and Pastor Andrew to come up, and I'll jump down as well. And um, when the team's leading us in the song, i just love for you, if, again, any, any prayer request at all, but specifically, I think, after a conversation around healing, we would really be remiss to not take this moment to pray for one another in this way. So I'm going to invite Pastor Emma and Andrew to come up. Jesus, we love you. We recognize that even in this moment, my faith is stirred with worship and gratitude and thanksgiving that you healed the paralysis of my soul. That God, you bridged the gap that no one could bridge. That you restored life. That renewed us in our spirit that we went from death to life and old creation to new creation, the old gone and the new here. But God, just even in this moment, God, I pray that you begin to soften hearts, bring your healing touch by your spirit in Jesus' name. God, I pray that you would even heal like 
some of the hurt and the baggage of past disappointment and disillusionment. I pray against the lies of the enemy that has somehow made its way into the narrative that it's because you don't love us or we don't have enough faith that you didn't heal in the past. And I pray that you'd restore us with hope, renew our strength in the promises that you've given us, that one day, no more pain, no more suffering, no more brokenness. But in the now reality of the kingdom of God, we come before you with boldness, asking for your healing touch. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Again, the team's going to lead us, but we'd love to pray for you. What an amazing miracle that we get to experience, that we get to even approach God with confidence. He's honored when we approach him with our needs. So let's worship and pray tonight. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.